This week's episode is brought to you by Captain Fantastic for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture. Viggo Mortensen plays the patriarch of a counterculture family that he drives cross-country in a bus for their mother's funeral. It was easy to keep them sheltered from the evils of society when he raised them in the woods. It becomes more difficult when those kids are faced with the seductions of the real world. The New York Post called it one of the year's best movies, and our very own Pete Hammond from Deadline said it's a heartwarming, beautifully performed gem. Now named one of the National Board of Review's top 10 independent films of the year. Discover more at BleakerStreetGills.com. Hi, this is Peter Bart. Welcome to the Bart Fleming Podcast, in which Mike Fleming and I try to review developments in movies and the media, and now and then even come up with a consensus. Mike, hello there. Hi, glad to be here. So, in looking at the news on my way here, I saw that um, that Ryan Kavanaugh finally seemed to have given up the ghost on relativity after an almost 12-year run and uh, having buried one, was it about a billion two in liabilities in his bankruptcy, but he he claimed over the last couple of years that he was going to turn this around and make it a winner. And apparently relativity is no more, but I think you expected this to come, didn't you? Well, I was very surprised when Donald Trump won the presidency, but this this seemed almost like less less about if it would happen than when it would happen, and we're still we'll, we're still monitoring this to see if uh, it's time to uh, to perform last rites. But it certainly doesn't uh, seem good when his production chief Dana Brunetti basically steps out and they furloughed a lot of workers over the holiday and laid off other workers. I mean, this is just sort of like um, a slow bleed, and it seems like finally, um, you know, uh, it's an eventuality that everyone pretty much expected. It's incredibly hard to recover from uh, Chapter 11. I think MGM did it, but they had a ton of assets. They had The Lord of the Rings, and they had the 007 movies. Ryan Kavanaugh had none of those things. But Ryan also was, I think, barely 40, 41 years old. He's a young guy, very persuasive, a terrific personality. And in a way, Relativity was a welcomed entry in town because it was designed to be an independent. And and Mike and I, and, and you know, the studios uh, could use a little competition from, from independence. Mike and I both heard his sales pitch, however, and I never quite got why it was so significant and persuasive, namely, uh, to reduce it to simplest terms, that um, he would cover his risk on pictures through foreign pre-sales. And that's all fine as long as you can mobilize these pre-sales as long as you have the casts and the prop, the projects that would entice them, and as long as the the the, the overseas um, exhibitors and distributors paid their bills, which they have a tendency not to do, particularly to uh, to 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 new to new entities. 
So, well, Peter, guys like Dino De Laurentiis and uh, Ely Samaha, they have propped up companies with that foreign presale pitch. But the thing that uh, that I think Ryan Kavanaugh felt that he was able to do was to predict um, niche audiences for reasonably priced films where talent took a haircut and basically stood to gain on the back end. Now, we've seen that work in some cases, but I can't think of a single one, uh, maybe maybe the movie uh, Limitless with Bradley Cooper, Perhaps, uh, uh, you know, uh, perhaps he saw some some back end, but I can't think of a single one that worked. And the remarkable thing about Ryan Kavanaugh is, if you recall, it wasn't that many years ago when he was basically co-financing the slates of two studios, I believe Universal and uh, and Sony Pictures. And so and then that sort of cratered. That business cratered for him, and then he moved into this uh, picture business, and uh, and that also cratered. Well, you make a good point. It's one thing to come up with money, and he was great at hustling money. It's another thing to come up with movie projects, with scripts, with packages that, that really will find a market. Uh, he was not as persuasive and as charming as he is. Uh, Ryan quite never was able to, to lick that side of it. I thought that Dana Brunetti, frankly, if they could levitate this thing, would have been a big help to him. He's a very tasteful guy. You know him well. Well, yes, but he. Um, I haven't talked to him in a while. Um, I did originate the story back when Ryan was pulling himself out of Chapter 11, and uh, Kevin Spacey and Dana were going to fold their trigger street into relativity. Now, I think... Kevin ended up backing out of this, and I think that perhaps he had a good hard look at what he was getting into, but Dana went ahead and um, <clears throat> and took the plunge. And, um, you know, and, and, and in, in his run, there, there was unfortunately no, no, no substance uh, to back him up. I mean, he's done, he has terrific credits as a producer, including the Fifty Shades of Grey films and Moneyball and, and a bunch of others, Captain Phillips. However, and he did some great stuff with Kevin Spacey, and I thought Trigger Street was going to take that next step and put itself out um, to gain, uh, to become a, a funded independent company that they had cachet and they had a niche. But uh, Dana took issue when I had written that without Spacey as the face of this company, um, basically what the business saw was Ryan Kavanaugh. And they simply didn't trust that that he would be able to make a go of it. And they had trouble packaging pictures and the ones that they that languished in suspended animation until the company came out of bankruptcy did not really do well at the box office at all. It's kind of a sad story to me. Um, and beyond the fact that there are people employed there who are basically facing the holidays with knowing that if not right now, very soon they're going to have to, to look for jobs. Well, to switch subjects here, another thing I, I, I noticed uh, was that uh, the it was just a, a couple of years ago that the great Sony hacking scandal took place. And you, I know, and I both wrote extensively about that. 
And and I was reminded of the the impact of this scandal by the 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 manner in which uh, the the hacked material from the Democratic National Committee was printed and published in the New York Times, Washington Post, and every other paper. That, in other words, has become totally respectable, totally cool, for 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 newspapers to publish as fact material which is basically pirated from people's websites. Uh, now, all of this, of course, is had much more import today when it involved the, the Democratic National Committee. But a couple of years ago, um, as you vividly reported, um, Sony was thrown on its heels uh, when it suddenly discovered, as a result of Seth Rogen's North Korean epic, when it suddenly discovered that everything, all of its records, all of its profit and loss statements, what everyone was making, it all was being was was being uh, released by WikiLeaks, and and the and the newspapers and the media, by and large, printed all of that material uh, as facts. Um, well, but uh, but a couple of things there, and. Um yeah, we covered that Sony hack very closely. As I recall, we actually broke the fact that people had that uh, the diabolical images on their screen that made everybody say, "What is going on here?" But um, but I remember it um, a little bit differently. WikiLeaks didn't come in until way after the fact. What happened was this shadowy organization um, that later was reputed to have been. Um, you know, North Korean hackers uh, trying to trying to stop the uh, the release of the interview dispersed all these embarrassing emails involving Amy Pascal and, and other Sony people and producers and filmmakers um, to to all to all of this media, which never would have uh, been able to get that kind of stuff. And um, I don't know. I, at the time, we'd never seen anything like that before. I didn't like the fact that we didn't know where this stuff was originating from and where it was going to lead. And so basically, I, I kind of took a stand and I said I, I didn't want us to build stories out of those hacked documents. I mean, this could have happened to anyone. It was private stolen correspondence and, um, and all the other studios, instead of uh, rallying around Sony, basically left them twisting in the wind. And so did the United States government and the MPAA. Um, they, you know, they, basically the studio was twisting in the wind for weeks. Um, and But it wasn't until later that uh, we found out um, that where that where this was originating from, because it came with a with a threat to blow up theaters if the interview was released. So that was a that was a um, that was a. Twilight Zone month. And then we all went on vacation for the holiday. And when we came back, it was almost like it didn't happen, except that the people who worked at the studio, um, most people were most of the press was interested in these uh, in these memos, these tawdry emails. But basically, all the Social Security numbers of people who were employed by that studio were dispersed and made public. And so it, it, I, I would imagine it continues to be a nightmare for a lot of these people whose information and who, when their children's information was made public and is out on the street. And, I don't think you can change your Social Security number. And do you remember one of the first pieces of data that was released was that Seth Rogen was paid $8.4 million dollars 
for his his uh, his role in the in the interview and for producing it. And of course, I don't think ever any studio ever regretted the expenditure of eight million dollars more than Sony did uh, for for Rogan to to do that picture. But Mike, it's interesting to examine the impact of that. You know, from the standpoint of a couple of years. It has changed the manners and mores of Hollywood to a degree in that, number one, executives now are very wary about committing uh, ideas and data to emails. People have become very freaked about their email correspondence, and I think wisely so. Um, I always have been wary about committing things to emails. But the, the result of this is that the unthinkable has happened. At studio executives actually returning to the idea of making phone calls and even having meetings, even telling people over lunch some of these dreadful things rather than uh, leaking snarky remarks about scripts and, and pay, pay salaries uh, to uh, on emails. Everyone is now confiding it person to person. So I think in a way the, the manners and mores have improved in town as a result of this hacking. What do you think? Well, my, my, I've got a couple of thoughts, not directly on that, but I, I would have to say that if this same situation arose today, we would have to be, we would have to jump right in and we would have to deal with these. We would have to consider these emails to be fair game. Um, I think after what we saw in the presidential election, this has now been institutionalized as fair game. And we would basically, I would not be able to, uh, I would not be able to, to, um, you know, to not take part in that because it would be, uh, it would basically be putting my publication as at a disadvantage. But I guess in some ways it's like the, the, I can remember years ago, I, I held the story that Steven Spielberg was going to direct Munich for three years because he he hemmed and hawed, he was going to do it, then he wasn't going to do it, and I waited, and I actually broke the story. And and nowadays, I could never hold a story like that. It, we are living in a in this digital age where everything moves so quickly, and there are no secrets. Um, and people are are wary of committing themselves to emails, but I think by and large, what they do now is they text. Yeah, that's true. They text. They talk and they text. That's not bad habits. I think sometimes that you um, you do alterate a lot about when to release stories. My, my attitude in my uh, 20 years as editor-in-chief of Variety, I had a little bit more of a knee-in-the-groin approach in the sense that I felt usually when someone asked me to hold a story, the reasons were specious and self-serving. So my tendency was to say, appreciate that. I'm going to go with it anyway. And now and then I regretted it, but um, more often I I felt it was justified. Uh, but these are tough decisions. And, you know, I know you more than I live with them every day. Uh, happily, well, I don't have to. Well, I, um, I tend to play the long game. I've always done it that way. But, you know, but yeah, sometimes these things do blow up in your face. I, I had one just recently in which a uh, there was a movie that's being built around a pitch by the big short writer Charles Randolph about uh, Roger Ailes and what took place at the at the Fox Network. And basically I was begged and and, you know, if I if I if I put this out before it actually got set up, it was going to create some legal entanglements for them, et cetera, et cetera. And I. I hung in there and basically 
I lost. Um, we were beaten on the story by, you know, not long, by maybe a minute. But and the, but the fact is, uh, I'll certainly never hold a story like that again. This week's episode is brought to you by Captain Fantastic, which just received a Golden Globe and SAG nomination for Best Actor in a Motion Picture for Viggo Mortensen. The Los Angeles Times proclaimed Viggo Mortensen gives one of the best performances of 2016, and USA Today said Viggo Mortensen is a marvel. He continues to show up on on best actor lists, and Peter, who knows, he might uh, he we we may see him um, at the Academy Awards. Discover more at BleakerStreetGuilds.com. Well, my definition of the long game is a little different. I always feel in the long run, uh, everybody in the long term is going to be out to screw you. So you you might as well um, deal with with that with a certain. Uh, Good humor and equanimity, but I don't um, want to agree with you, Peter. I I've, I have always looked at it this way: um, we are in the enviable position of being very, very close to the flame and in the huddle. And I think that we need to balance the responsibility to tell our readers um, what is newsworthy and what is important. But I also think that uh, if you are ruthless all the time especially for someone in my position, uh, you're just not going to last. And I've seen many people who were ruthless and they didn't last. And and look, I need to get three kids through college and I need to feel good about myself at night. Um, and so I'm going to just continue to do what I do and evolve. But I will say that I certainly didn't feel that good that weekend when a story that uh, that I should have run you know, was someone else's trophy. Well, not to sound too cynical, but my, the burden that I carried, as you well know, Mike, was that before the 20 years at Variety, I spent 20 years on the side of the studios. And I was always in fury. The studios, by and large, the, the, the power players at the studios held the press in, in such contempt and were so, were so manipulative and cynical about the, 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 um, their relationship with the press and the media that when I suddenly became the press, my attitude was a little more hard-nosed because um, I saw what I was up against, and to a degree, I was up against myself. Well, I think in the case, I'm, and I, I brought it up only because it's the longest that I can recall holding a story, but I brought up Munich. And I think if I had run that story at the beginning, because it was a contentious project based on a disputed book, <clears throat> and I think if I had run it when I heard it, I bet you the movie would not have happened. And as it turns out, I did break the story, and it's one of my favorite movies. So <laughs> you make a good, there I won. You sometimes make, you win, sometimes you lose. You but, make a good, you know, you make a nice good point, though. Yeah. This business and the way we do it is... It's almost like missing a bus. You just wait there, and in five minutes, you can catch the next bus. Yeah, people don't realize how easy it is to kill us uh, to kill a picture sometimes by revealing its details early. But John, we're talking about coverage. I'm interested in the the divergent way that uh, the media covers the whole incursion of China into Hollywood and the media business. Because some of the media our media players are, are very seem almost beholden to the Chinese and faithfully print uh, all of their pronouncements as though they were going to be, they were going to come through on every front. Whereas 
this is very early with the stage uh, with with of, within the stage of dealings between the media business and China. But at this stage, you and I have witnessed um, many deals being announced and the money not appearing. Some of the promises and commitments have tended to vanish. Or on another level, the degree of control that the the Chinese authorities want to exercise is vastly uh, greater than what was promised up front. And I call all of this, as as you pointed out in the story recently, all of this is in the future is up in the air because uh, the, the Donald Trump administration, how will their attitudes affect the relationship? Well, I mean, the, the, the thing is, there are there are enough companies in China that are real to make it very understandable why Hollywood sees them as uh, as vital to the future. And uh, I think just recently it was the, the claim was made that there are now more movie screens in China than there are in the United States. Now, that's just in China. So getting your movie into China even though you keep about, I don't know, 20 or 25 cents on the dollar as compared to 45 to 50 cents on the dollar in the United States becomes very vital. And um, and so you're going to see studios continue to try to engage in strategic partnerships. And, it, and it, it, it isn't unfathomable to imagine that a Chinese company might actually buy a Hollywood studio. But the truth is, you know, and this has had this has been borne out in the past when when Korean companies and Japanese companies bought into Hollywood in a big way. Usually, they end up losing a lot of money, and either they stay um, or they or they leave, and their their wallets are lighter. So a lot of this will probably will have to see it borne out. And the fact of the matter is, even if a major studio that has a deal with China won't make a picture about Tibet, let's say, um, or some politically political hot button film on Hong Kong. That doesn't that is not to say that an independent film won't get made on the same subject. It just is going to have a little bit of a harder road. And clearly it that road is not going to lead to theaters in China. Well, to, to me, the symbol of Hollywood's relationship with China, uh, the symbol of it was when Variety uh, some years ago made a deal to publish an edition in China. And uh, after the first few months, I went over there to see exactly how uh, how the office was working. And uh, so I go in, and there's a very nice office that says Variety China. And I look around, and all the few reporters are in their cubicles. But there's one big office over in the corner with nice windows and better air conditioning. And guess who's in the big office? It's the official censor. It's the, the representative of the Chinese uh, cultural uh, department uh, that has absolute power to um, to X out anything in the reporting that Variety has that it doesn't like. So the censor basically symbolically and realistically had already taken over the, the publication. Now, that's true of a publication. Think of what that's going to be like as more Chinese Hollywood co-productions are set forth. Well, look, Hollywood has gotten into bed with uh, unsavory types in the past, and um, and <clears throat> and this this wave of investments in China is not going to go away 
anytime soon. And some might see it as an interesting cultural experiment, um, you know, and, and bringing the Middle Kingdom to, you know, to all over the world and bringing the influences of the world into China. We'll have to just see how it uh, plays out. But there is money to uh, to be had. And, of course, um, these studios that, that want to build their tent poles um, are, are desperate to have that money. And they're also desperate to have their tent poles play in theaters all over China. But let's examine again the, the possible uh, impact of the Trump administration on all this, because Donald Trump... Um, his bias is clearly toward Russia, not China. His friends are in Russia. His extensive dealings are in Russia, although we will never know the extent of them because we can't see his income taxes or any other records. But if Donald Trump uh, wants to covet his relationship with Russia that great, would there be initiatives to have more uh, Hollywood slash Russian co-productions, use more Russian filmmakers, make co-productions which, which like The Great Wall, you know, The Great Wall starring Matt Damon, Mike, which is going to be released soon. Will there be a equivalent of a Great Wall co-production involving Russia? That would be intriguing and, and confusing to behold. I, I don't, I disagree with you. I, I think basically the biggest challenge that Hollywood will have with the Trump administration is the fact that almost no one in Hollywood supported Donald Trump's candidacy. In fact, they were, they were downright disdainful of his candidacy and they all lined up as liberals. And so usually when that happens, there is some sort of um, there is there is some sort of price to be paid. No one really expected that Donald Trump was going to prevail the way that he did, and so I can't imagine that he's going to be in a mood to do Hollywood many favors at all. Now he has already antagonized the Chinese government, um, and that is something that Hollywood and and the people who are basically brokering these deals don't need, and so. I don't think the Russian thing has anything to do with this at all. I think it's just simply how much how much of um, how much does do, will the Trump administration want to get in the way of this expansion into China? That's the real question. Well, says so the sidelight, though, it's interesting that uh, whereas the relations between the Obama administration and Hollywood, despite Hollywood's liberal bias, those relations were chilly and. Um, Barack Obama did not particularly like the company of 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 Hollywood players, and in fact, liked to distance himself from them. But the, the the one of the most powerful people in the Trump administration is Mnuchin, and Mnuchin is intricately involved with uh, a number of of important players in Hollywood. Is his Dune Dune partnership has financed. Uh, far more movies than Ryan Kavanaugh ever did, and he's f- friendly with Brett Ratner and many other many other the players in town. So it would be interesting to see, with all of the traditional uh, tension, the tension between Hollywood liberals, as you say, and and uh, and Trump, whether all of a sudden this is all going to melt because a Donald Trump loves show business; he's part of it. 
and and Mnuchin and a couple of his other important uh, partners in the new administration uh, absolutely loved their relationship with Hollywood and made a lot of money from Hollywood. Well, Steve Mnuchin um, and I think um, Chachi, Scott Bayo were pretty much the, the most vocal um, advocates for Donald Trump. And obviously, Mnuchin had a, a major role in raising money for Donald Trump. But I don't think that uh, I think uh, uh, Donald Trump now is in the catbird seat. And I think that uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what Hollywood feels it has to do to basically get things done. And I think that includes the uh, I think that includes the uh, the Time Warner uh, AT&T merger as well, which uh, which uh, as a candidate, Donald Trump was disdainful of that transaction. He he was wary of it and cautious about it. And it is going to be very interesting to see how Hollywood's sudden urge to merge um, is impacted by by the by the new administration. Well, traditionally, of course, Republican administrations are much more uh, much more open to mergers and acquisitions, and that's also true of the of the, the FCC, the FTC, and other elements of the, of the administration. If any of them survive, I mean, all the speech making is that that everyone coming into these cabinet jobs wants to basically obliterate. The uh, the federal agency that they're ostensibly taking over. So let's see if everyone really follows through on their threats, or for example, whether the new Secretary of Education is going to kill education. Well, Peter, I I don't know that we can really predict much of anything about what to expect from Donald Trump. I mean, when has a president elect basically um, spent eons of time? tweeting uh, aggressive messages um, almost spontaneously when something displeases him. Um, We've never seen anything like this before. And I think that that was one reason why a lot of people were wary about Donald Trump is that, you know, um, um, a, a seasoned leader does not react immediately. Usually you'll you'll take a uh, you'll take a moment to to meditate on what has happened, and then you will respond. But um, I don't think that we've ever seen anyone quite like Donald Trump, and I'm not being judgmental. He, he might be a very interesting president, but certainly his propensity to react off the cuff and to, and to take things um, and, and to always look to hit back when he feels that he's been hit is, is something... Is, is one reason why I don't think that we can really predict what's going to happen well, that's with true. the Trump administration. That is true, but, and it, but as the pundits keep pointing out, at least Trump and his those around him understood the changes in the media and nationwide and understood the fact that the social media, that tweets, there were so many other ways of reaching people other than the, 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 the Clinton campaign, which seems so locked into the traditions of media advertising, hugely outspent Trump uh, with their ad budgets and apparently without that much effect. So we'll see the, all of this. Well, they, yeah, well, they certainly know a lot about, uh, about Internet security. Um, or maybe no one was trying to rifle their emails, but I think you could make a good case that, um, you know, that, that the serving up of the Democratic National Committee's 
and uh, the John Podesta uh, emails may well have cost Hillary Clinton the, 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 the presidency of the United States. And if you think of the enormity of that, it just underscores how interesting and challenging a world that we live in in this digital age. That's right. And let the record show, just so the listeners understand, just as Mike Fleming and I disagree in our opinions about most movies, so we also disagree in our opinions about most political issues, the, the, the last few minutes notwithstanding. Mike, good to talk to you as always. Happy New Year. <laughs>